And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on May 18th, 2022. Neil Hendrickson worked for Bartlett Tree Research Labs, where he served as their Northeast Technical Specialist for over 20 years before his retirement in 2019. Neil is a New Jersey licensed tree expert and maintains his tree risk assessment qualifications. He now serves as chair of the Reddington Township, New Jersey Environmental Commission and Tree Advisory Committee, and is a member of Reddington Open Space Advisory Board and the Hunterdon County Shade Tree Commission. Neil is also on the executive board of the New Jersey Shade Tree Federation. He received his Bachelor of Science in Forestry from Cook College Rutgers University, his Master of Science in Forest Science from University of New Hampshire, and his PhD in silviculture and forest ecology from the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Neil. We're delighted you could be with us today. Thank you for having me. We have so many questions as always for our guests, but the one that we find the most, I think, intriguing is how people arrive at their professional career how and what was the path that you took to get to forestry and being a tree specialist? In one word, luck. Going way back, I was a completely indifferent student when I went to school when the dinosaurs ruled the earth in the 60s. Uh, I went to a local college that would take anybody, so they took me. I went through, I don't know, multiple majors. Nothing really did it for me. Uh, I thought I was going to be a humorist. Uh, That didn't work out. I wasn't that funny. And uh, anyway, one day I was taking the easiest class they offered in science, a biology class, and I was teasing apart a segmented worm under a microscope. And I said, you know what? Every high school teacher said, stay out of science, Hendrickson, you have no ability. My uh, high school guidance counselor said uh, to my mother, don't send him to college. He has no aptitude. And as I was uh, doing this, I said, I think I'd like to learn something about this. So I applied to transfer and went to Rutgers and said, I want to, I want to get into um, wildlife biology. They said, okay, so take this course, wildlife biology and forestry. And wildlife biology was okay, but then they started talking about trees and I said, I don't know anything about trees. So I went into forestry, barely got through because I had to make up all the science. And then said, I still don't know anything when I graduated, so I applied to grad school. They took me for reasons I'll never know. Got through two years and one extra year of one semester of research and one semester of teaching. Said, I like this. I still don't know anything. And they said, go for a PhD. So I applied and uh, through some kind of divine intervention, got accepted. But what got me really into forestry was reading a textbook, the best I'd ever read so much that I didn't want to put it down. And the guy was at the same university where I went to Yale, forestry school. So I had deified him in my mind. And uh, then the professor I was then working with got fired, didn't get tenure. And the same guy that wrote the book appeared in my office door and said, I I hear you're looking for a major professor and I am looking for a PhD student. And uh, that's luck. He's one of the most influential people, if not the, that I ever had. So... That's how I got there. And then uh, I got an academic job and didn't get tenured. So I came back to New Jersey and a tree company in my town said help water. And I walked in and became an arborist, a long and painful process. Uh, I said, but I want to do this better if I'm going to do it. So I applied to Bartlett and where they do 
more scientific uh, tree care than a lot. And they took me. And so I sold tree care for 13 years. And then uh, they said, look, you have a PhD and we need another lab person. You want the job. And so for 22 years, I did that. So that's, that's the long story of how I got here. Best career anybody could have. It's very rare that you find something different and enjoyable every day of your career. And I did. You might have good days in arboriculture. You might have bad days, but you should never have a dull day. That's very true. Well said. Well, one of the reasons we're so excited that we could schedule you today, Neil, is that you've always been an arborist, that as, at least for as long as I've known you, that was not shy about talking about global warming. Uh, you were clearly onto it earlier than most. And I recall a lecture that you gave in 05 or, or 06, where you began to knit arboriculture together with the science of climate change. Can you talk a little bit about your first impressions of that emerging data? I'm assuming maybe you were still at Yale and you know your thoughts about the information that was coming from the scientific community? Yeah, one of the things that's probably a strength and a weakness is I'm a generalist. I'm not a great at any particular discipline within arboriculture. I am not a great plant physiologist, uh, uh, which I wish I were. But what I did have is a very broad scientific education. And I had, one again, a brilliant professor who said various things, like um, the forest you see, and this is 1974, five, the forest you see around you is an artifact of your time. Uh, climate change uh, and deer will prevent any regeneration and, and this and that. So it was great professors uh, who made you think, uh, which is what anyone who teaches wants to get out of their students. And I will give the place credit. It was a place that made you think. And so consequently, when I got into arboriculture, um, as we've talked about, Hal, is um, we know that this was the elephant in the room that we never deal with. Um, so when I first did a talk about it, because the thing about doing lectures is you, if you like to do them, it's also because you learn a lot in preparation and you put together thoughts that you didn't have before. And then you can pass them on and hope you get other people to think. So I had taken some of those old ideas, but I never let them go. They were always present and put them together. And yeah, way back then in, uh, early years. And then uh, I had somebody very high up in the administration of art, let's say, you know what, nobody else is talking about this. So when you're asked to speak, you do this talk because it's a, it's a good one. So I did for years and years and years. And, and it was interesting how the numbers as years went by changed dramatically and in a bad way. Uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. I, re I remember in grad school at the University of New Hampshire, measuring CO2 in a, around, and uh, it's, I, I think, what, almost 100 parts per million higher now than it was in the mid-70s, early 70s. So anyway, and, and since it affects trees, and um, the nice thing about being a lab guy at Bartlett is that was our thing to do. We weren't selling tree work. We had to learn and be able to pass on the best knowledge we could to our employees. That's really why. Always had an interest, and it's critical to what we do and what we plant and how we grow it. And also in diagnosis, it's not always obvious that it's actually a changing climate that is having subtle effects, either in rainfall, dryness, uh, species selection, what you can plant, what you can't. It's all related. So it's, a, it's the elephant in the room for arborists, whether they care to think about it or not. How could we personally push that further. I know I talked about it in my woody plants classes all the time, but, you know, people would say, well, nobody's talking about it. Like, like Hal said, nobody was talking about it. Well, unfortunately, this is where the pessimist in me comes in because really tree companies, for example, are mostly in the business to make amenity trees, landscape trees, look nice, safe, but you're driving six mile a gallon trucks with 625 gas and a diesel chipper. There's electric trucks out there, but uh, they're too expensive. There's electric cars to have reps drive. They're too expensive. So 
it's not likely to come from the tree care industry. It's, uh, we also don't deal with trees on that kind of scale. And if you look at the fossil fuel industry, um, the, the uh, amount, we're consuming more. And as I've had this conversation with Hal, all the trees in the world, well, planting a trillion trees. If you could increase mileage of cars by a mile per gallon or two, you would do more than everything you could do for planting trees. Plus, the planting trees issue is as climate change is making some land less arable and others more, that land becomes highly valued for production of food. People are moving out of land that has become desertified onto arable land, causing political conflicts and things like that. So it's got to come from a huge global effort. And frankly, I just don't see where that's going to come from. We see what's happened when when people tried to uh, stop using fuel from uh, uh, gas and oil from Russia. Uh, the crisis it started to get it from somewhere else. You know, the the conversion to electric vehicles and alternative fuels is out there, but it's a long planning horizon. So that's uh, my grim view of it. Do you think it's because people just don't have the will? Yes. And so where there's a will, there's a way. And where there's yeah. no will, there's no way. Well, I would like to own a Tesla, but I don't have a, a, an extra hundred grand floating around. And uh, um, the company uh, that uh, Hal and I worked for, the company cars were Priuses, and I was very happy. And I, I would drive a car with a V8 on the weekend because I'm a kid from the 60s, because I could uh, assuage my guilt by driving the Prius all week. But then they don't do that. So... Yeah, there's not a lot of will. You don't see as many Priuses as you did before. You see more pickup trucks. And it's the old story that no matter how many downpours we get that is that are predicted by climate change models, that where our rain will be coming in more downpours uh, and less of the old pattern of rainfall, and the West will dry up like a potato chip. Despite all that, we are, we're still pretty much doing the same thing. Uh, we live with it. It's still like the old uh, story of the frog in a frying pan. If you throw it into a hot frying pan, it jumps out. We're not there. It's become gradual. And although the heat is being increasing at a, uh, an increasing rate, we could still fry the frog. That's grim, but. One thing you kind of illuminated, and it was a clarifying moment when we talked a couple of days ago, Neil, is uh, I think I'm using the word right. Uh, there's a bifurcation with tree planting initiatives. There's one, you know, even I have this podcast, the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, because if we could see humanity step it up, and yes, I realize the science is working against us and that there's other obstacles that will slow and limit achieving those types of goals. But then on the flip side, there's tree planting in hot cities that are quickly becoming unlivable. Like I, I had a after dinner walk through my neighborhood and peered down a side street that was treed. You know, it was all small underwire trees. I think dominant species was mostly prunus. But the effect was there. And, you know, you fast forward to June, July, August, when the heat is back, the humidity is high, I would be looking down a street that I could still be reasonably comfortable on. So there is a distinction. And I wondered if you wanted to uh, take that a little bit further. Yeah, on a global scale, it's, it's one thing. But on a local scale, we all know, certainly there's been plenty of data published of the benefits that trees provide, the environmental benefits, the ecological benefits of shade, of cooling, of uh, oxygen production, of carbon sequestration, which wasn't a really an issue back uh, when I first started talking about climate change, uh, letting old trees stay because, uh, because they sequester more carbon at a rap more rapid rate than young trees. So there, there are those ecological benefits, which there are those programs like iTree talk about. And then there are the other social benefits that have also been published. When you have a neighborhood that didn't have trees and then gets planted, crime goes down. There is, oh, I don't know, a paper or two written years ago that everybody cites, which said for a patient recovering in a hospital room, if they can look out the window at a tree or trees, 
they recover faster. Uh, to get it down to a, another level, is there's a book that was very influential for me when I when I picked it up, called The Last Child in the Woods. Did you ever hear of that one? Yeah. Well, the idea is uh, a lot of the problems that ail our kids from sitting in front of a computer instead of going outside getting dirty and coming home when the when the sun goes down. If kids got out in the woods and got dirty, there'd be a lot of fewer mental health issues. And then there are these terms like forest bathing, the Japanese have coined. The idea is trees, the woods, are therapeutic. So not only are they ecologically therapeutic on a small scale, a local scale, that's why uh, I think a trillion trees is, is great. But uh, I work with the Million Trees Planting Project in New York City and trees got planted and they they are they were doing a nice job of that because not only the amenity value but the ecological and social benefits are so substantial from having trees but there was an article uh in the new york times about these enormously tall side skyscrapers now that are a thousand feet and up and one of the consequences that people don't think about there is no direct sunlight to the ground below, the streets below. Mm. So it's almost impossible or will be to plant any tree that gets adequate light. Even a very shade tolerant plant will not tolerate being in shade all day. So uh, it's interesting how there these conflicts arise. Uh, the taller the buildings, the less likely you are to be able to have urban streets for, uh, treed. But yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement. There's, I mean, there's also the well-known heat island effect and what you kind of alluded to, that uh, anything you can do on a local level, if your city is 7 degrees or 10 degrees warmer than the surrounding wooded area 30 miles out of town, and you can put in enough trees to reduce it a couple of degrees and cool it, what a great difference that can make. And we all seek the shade of a tree in hot weather. So, Yeah. Do you think that the other, I would say the benefits of trees, like health, mental health, decrease in crime, do you think if they were pushed more, it would actually be beneficial for the environment as far as global warming? If we push those ideas rather than global warming, that people would believe that quicker than they will believe global warming because there's still a huge amount of people. I don't know how they can't understand that global warming is happening, but you know, there's there's a lot of people who don't believe that. And I'm wondering if, if we approach it in another way. Al Gore called it an inconvenient truth. Climate change will fall disproportionately on the poor places and people. Uh, so people like us uh, who have resources and who can run down to the corner and fill up their, their pickup truck with gas, uh, there's very little incentive. People will not necessarily do things that feel good if anything is inconvenient. So at least in a city, planting trees benefits everybody. It's more than a feel-good thing. Uh, it looks nice. Property values go up when there's trees. This is true everywhere. Uh, I think the number was up to about 20% of a property's value. Now with property values going, doing what they're doing, I don't know. So whether people are actually conscious, it does, they do have benefits. But whether anyone will act altruistically Probably not if it's inconvenient. People will certainly plant trees in cities because it's good for everybody. It's good for government public relations and it's good for the people that live there. But it's still probably, most cities are still probably underplanted for lack of funding. So if you have competing requests for funds, where are they going to go? Are they going to plant trees? Are you going to feed people? Or are you going to educate them? There's a lot of competition for scarce funds at, at governmental levels. Can we just circle back to Eva's question? Arborists are at the are frontline workers with the climate catastrophe. They just don't know it. And I still think we have to be innovators here with how the tree care industry can respond to their huge carbon footprint. Because it's a narrow focus right now of amenity trees. There's uh, a segment of services that are being done that 
are also using, you know, fertilizers and the huge draw on carbon just in their manufacturing. So how do you answer that question? My thought is, I'll go first, is I think tree companies need to be more involved with the tree planting process. We had a guest on recently, Cliff Drouet, who plants trees and leads volunteers for strip mine reclamation. And, you know, on any given weekend, volunteers are getting well over five or 600 trees. What if the tree care industry from the ISA and the TCIA top down said, tree care companies, the challenge is on you to start a tree planting crew and be invested in getting trees planted for your clients, especially where canopies have been lost due to climatological events associated with the climate catastrophe? Well, multiple answers to that. So you mentioned fertilizers. So uh, early on, one of the benefits of being a scientist for a company that supports a laboratory was that uh, you realize that for the most part, without a soil test, you shouldn't be fertilized. Right. It's, it makes money and people are convinced or they are told, sell fertilizer annually. But the truth is, there's a lot of good data out there that says, basically, if trees grow under the conditions in which they thrived in nature, it's organic. Plus, as arborist wood chips, which you are the best source of mulch, are just put there and let the microbes incorporate them as organic matter in the soil, it's a massive carbon sink. And, and soil, healthy soil, has, uh, oh, there's all kinds of gee whiz numbers, but a teaspoon of soil has more microbes in it than the population in the world, that sort of thing. So making the soil healthy rather than artificially applying fertilizer. So a lot of what we do as arborists is we deal with disturbed urban conditions. So one of the things that we could do is prevent urban conditions from being so depleted and damaged and compacted in soils and restore soils through things like uh, compost incorporation and less fertilization. Because as as we know, uh, someone once said at another lecture uh, that we all live on waterfront property, which means that for that lawn company that goes down uh, across the lawn with a drop spreader, all of those particles of fertilizer that land on the sidewalk and in the driveway end up in somebody's water. If you look at the algal plumes coming out into the Chesapeake uh, and Delaware Bay and Hudson Bay, they're quite detectable, the the phosphorus buildup there. So among the things that, the small things that tree companies have done is for the most part, they've made the NPK, taken the P out so that there's no phosphorus because in most cases it's available. You don't need more. And if it's not uh, going to be taken up the fancy word is that uh, nutrient uptake is facultative, means they don't have to take it up. Some thought for many years that it was obligate, meaning if you put it there, the tree has to take it up. No, it doesn't, which means it's going to go into somebody's drinking water, into somebody's lake, into somebody's stream. So that's one small thing, is the issue of getting organic matter into the soil. And I think that's pretty well established, but it's not something that the agriculture industry wants to hear. Um, because you don't make money dumping a load of chips for somebody. In front of my house, I have about 30 yards that need to be moved because they they know I'll take it. So uh, that's one. And the other about planting, um, and we've discussed this. So if you're talking about, oh, out west where trees are cut and replanted, a planting crew will plant seedlings at the rate of hundreds a day uh, in miserable work up and down hills. Certainly I've seen it and experienced when I worked in British Columbia. And keeping up with that, it's much easier to harvest the timber than it is to prepare the ground and get seedlings in the ground. But if you're talking about the eastern landscape, the suburban landscape, well, people aren't planting seedlings. One, they want bigger trees. They want instant gratification, even in a city. You're not going to plant something two inches tall. So you're going to plant something the size of a B&B, which under the best of wholesale circumstances is going to potentially to cost $100 to $300. 
And then an arborist who's going to plant is not going to do it uh, out of the goodness of his or her heart. They're going to make money at it, which means the markup from what I've seen is two to two and a half times. So if you're going to plant a big tree and plant it properly, which still no one does, it could be too expensive. So I think the idea is an economic plant for, and a biological plant, not only to get trees in the ground, and, and you know from being in Philadelphia, those uh, what we used to call sidewalk coffins, planting pits, they have virtually no organic matter. I think the last time I was there with you, they were slate chips which as rain hits them, they probably discharge uh, soil moisture at about pH eight or nine, not doing the trees any good. So there is this material biochar, which could be incorporated, but it's an extra cost, but it would put a permanent source of organic matter in the ground. So you get into these kinds of details and I didn't figure I'd be going to this level of detail, but it's a lot of little things that could make a difference. Because when you have extra carbon in the soil, whether it be biochar or organic matter, you sequester more carbon. If, if we did that on a much greater scale of getting organic matter into the soil where we've depleted, that would make a giant difference. And if you happen to plant trees at the same time that will live to be as old as nature could allow them, uh, now we're talking about a difference, but as you know, only too well know, if we're planting urban trees, their average lifespan's less than a decade. So that's right. not doing it. Uh, we, we, so we have so many options for refining it. And arborists, to circle back, as you said, to your question, this is where we can make a difference, is doing things correctly and making the effort to educate and do it. And then, um, and then uh, talk about, getting more carbon into the soil. Well, you use the word innovate. And one reason I find myself more and more advocating for the tree care industry to plant is because we are gonna plant it correctly, right? You can't take the certified arborist test and know or read Gary Watson's book in preparation for it and not know three or four essentials towards good tree establishment that very likely isn't gonna happen if the landscaper takes it on or if the homeowner takes it on. But to your point about innovation, I think one thing even I have, it's kind of seeped into our consciousness about sourcing trees and what you want to use is B&Bs are very problematic. You know, from the soil that's getting yanked out of the nursery to the necessary excavation that has to go on to find the root flare to dealing with the wire basket, even an experienced crew that wants to do the job right, it's a lot going into situating a, a two with the two and a half inch tree that yes, you did pay $245 wholesale price to getting it situated properly at proper height. And I, what we've heard from a couple different growers is the, the fabric bag option and the bare root option. We all know their limitations. But if you're gonna get a tree company involved with planting a half a dozen quality trees in one day, then exploring those other options is, is one way to, uh, to move forward with a, a tree planting initiative, preferably under the umbrella of a private tree care company. Yeah, uh, no question. That's, it's worth, for a private person, it's worth paying for, but uh, somebody in a, in a talk once, said to me that, well, the reason landscapers don't do this, and now we're talking, now we're wandering into the cultural weeds that said, no, they can't learn to do this. Uh, I beg to differ. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to work with people who had no knowledge how to plant a tree, but we're doing it. And we're infinitely grateful to be told why we do it the way we want to do it. So um, part of this is, that, that unfortunately the people that need to know it the most aren't the ones that are receiving the information. Usually people like me or at conferences preach to the choir and the other people never get the information and they're afraid that it would cost more. Well, if you gradually build it in and uh, everything is costing more and to think you'll have a tree that will survive a lot longer than it would have otherwise or grow better 
or be more free of insects and disease because it can defend itself better when it's healthy. That's the educational component, which is really a huge part of this from where this conversation's going. If you think about it, it's uh, the educational component is, is gigantic. People can learn to do it right. And so the issue is, is getting this word out. So in the town where I for example, I try to work with the local middle school to get trees, uh, get kids outside working with trees, learning about trees. And they're very receptive. Kids like getting outside and getting dirty on a nice day as opposed to sitting in front of a keyboard. If you, once they're out there, they like it. So it should start in, in programs in early school. But there's not a lot of kids getting outside. Now it's getting hotter and there's video games and there's the Internet. Uh, it's hard to get and only organized sports. I know my grandkids are uh, subject to that. Very hard to get them in the woods and uh, talk about trees. So if they're not doing it now and they spend their lives uh, only on prepared art of, uh, turf to have organized sports and then sit in front of a screen, where are we going to educate people to offset climate change by doing things like planting trees and incorporating organic matter? We know our industry is hard to get people to come into it, and uh, you really have to have a passion. And we're not that big an industry. So it'll, it really needs to get out there, down to the elementary school levels, in cities and out. But I also think we need to re-educate arborists that it's more than chainsaws, chippers, and cool climbing equipment. Because the glossy pictures in the two magazines that the professional organizations put out. It's constantly marketing to recruit labor. Hey, do you like saddles? Do you like to climb? Do you like the challenge of a job? And that's all well and good, but we're pruning out dead limbs or we're taking them down. And I don't see how that has a role with offsetting our huge carbon footprint. I think, I think there's a big problem there. I don't disagree, but as we've said, I think that's the heavy lift. It, in, in the town in which I live, I'm sort of the go-to tree guy, and we need permits and replacements because we've instituted what we're trying to make a no-net loss. But the number of trees that people without permits thinking, you can't tell me what to do, go ahead and take down big trees for no reason. And you, you and I have both been there hey, in, in New Jersey, where I'm from. It's, hey, it's a dirty tree. I want it down. And so big trees will come down that we're doing great ecological things. So uh, could we stop doing that and try to explain it better to, to keep our bigger trees? All of that and plant and all of those things. But I just, I guess I'm, I'm not saying we don't have a place, but it takes someone to care more than what their check looks like every two weeks or at the end of the month. And, you know, money is what motivates everything. And, and tree care is a business. And trees are a commodity. Amen. They're just a source of where you make your money. So uh, doing the right thing is nice. But there, I mean, certainly we tell people the best thing you could do for your tree is put a mulch ring out to the jerk line. Well, I hate mulch and I love lawns. And they're the ones that put fertilizer on and have beautiful green lawns and the trees survive but not thrive under those conditions. And, and so once again, I come all the way back to getting people educated all the way back as far back as you can go to have more respect for the soil, for trees. People treat soil as dirt. We do treat soil like dirt, but it's a fragile resource and we don't talk about that. We talk about planting, but uh, a tree and its soil are one ecosystem and um, need to be treated as such. But if there's money to be made from soil care, good, then we can make a little difference. Uh, the word is not out there. People don't know. And for the most part, they don't care. Well, you know what? Um, I think if, you know, looking at the industry, I could, I could be a devil's advocate here and say, why do we even bother testing on tree care? Why do we even bother? Why do we bother testing on planting a tree if we don't want to do it? We're, we're hypocrites. That's what we are. And you want to have a business. The business should be from seed to takedown, whatever it is. 
but we should be doing the full gamut. And if we're not doing it, we should get out of that, take that piece out of, of training altogether if we're not willing to plan it. Yeah, the definition of arboriculture includes growing and cultivating trees. Exactly. And I think that, you know, it's great that everybody wants to be in the business for money. But the reason why we got into this problem that we have right now is quick money by cutting trees down and by using gas and fracking and all of this is the, the epitome of why we are where we are. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't incorporate the full range of what we're professing to train, then we are not doing our job as a profession, period, end of story. To me, that you're, the reason tree companies don't plant is they can't do it as efficiently as the landscaping industry. So those people that do plant, we inherit those as an arboricultural industry and make our money off of fixing the things that other people did. That's pretty much, so we do call it cradle to grave, but it's typically not tree birth. You know, we're not the ones that typically put them in the ground. We do, but not very much. So other people put them in the ground, but for the most part, a lot of the urban forest is a residual from when suburbs were built. A lot of what companies make their living on um, because the mature trees were there uh, when the houses were built for the most part or planted after the war, the baby boom. That was a big pulse of, of building and, and tree planting. Well, now they're fully mature. That's why you see a lot coming down. Um, but uh, uh, in, in the, the other part of that is, uh, we all know this who are in the industry, people don't plant shade trees that are going to take 50 to 70 years to get big. They're gonna plant ornamentals that flower like behind me in the image. And um, that's what people will plant. And so the future forest, as, as I said earlier, when somebody 40 years ago said, the forest we see today is an artifact of our time. They're not going to regenerate because of climate and because of deer, uh, at least where I, where we have insane deer problems. There is no regeneration. And in fact, I think it was good I ended up in arboriculture because forestry, to the best of my knowledge, you can't practice it if you really want to see the forest regenerate, unless you either work in an area where there are no deer or you shoot them because um, they will browse everything. And so much has changed because of that. As someone once said to me, deer browse is a greater problem to trees than climate change. So to get back to your question, a landscape company's plant, we as arborists inherit it, try to make them nice, fix them, and achieve the longevity, which they should have. And all along the way, everybody makes money. So uh, getting more trees in the ground is probably and this is uh, above my pay grade, but it's probably harder to do for private industry and more likely to be taken on by governmental agencies who have tried to do that. Mm -hmm. I have to say this because I, you know, I used to teach at another school full time and I had to teach everything. I had to teach everything from the seed to the death. And for me to do that and to train a horticulturalist and to train someone to do that and to understand it is, is critical for being able to take care of it when it's older. We don't just all become adults all of a sudden and then we have somebody take care of us. That's not how it works. We have somebody who sees us through the whole process. It's parenting, tree parenting, because if we can understand it when it's small, we can understand better when it's big and why we need to preserve it. We don't just get rid of old people because they're old. Sometimes it feels like that. We do, we do with that with trees. And, and it's, it's, it's disturbing because that's where all the, the knowledge is and the knowledge in people and also in trees because those trees are doing more for our environment than the younger ones can do because they can't do the heavy lifting like the big ones can. You know, we need to maintain these large trees because they're doing so much carbon capture. And even after, you know, belonging to the urban wood network, and I'm going to bring this up again, being able to 
have a resource to know that the tree is going to be cap the carbon's going to be captured in another product afterwards if it's taken down it's not just going into wood chips or it's not just going into somebody's fireplace all of these things need to be considered and i think we need to look at things more holistically rather than just well i'm just going to make my money here and that's all i'm going to do because you have to worry about what's upstream and what's downstream I, I'd agree to the extent that you have to make them do it. It's, it's, it's like politics. You have to elect people um, that will carry out your, your wishes. So in this case, if the public care, so I, I go back to the education at the earliest levels. If you, if you have kids that are raised with a consciousness, they will demand the services that you describe. But if there is no consciousness and there's no demand, then people will do what is convenient and profitable above all. And until those things you describe, until they say, you know, what we really want is, is great plants that are adapted to our site to grow to maturity. And we want that above everything. But that will have to start in elementary school, just as you described. So it is a, a demand uh, because right now there's no incentive for a tree company to do anything different than they do. Even the best of them, they're a business and profits, their motive. And how they get there, you can feel warm and fuzzy about it. But ultimately, it's really, uh, let's charge a lot for these services as much as we can get. And everybody will do that. So I will go back to say that I agree with what you're saying, but it's got to come from an educated populace that demands those services. Um, as they grow up, that that kids come home and say, "Mom, what, Dad, why why do you want to do that to the trees? We should be planting. We send seedlings home in my township with kids. We give them seedlings and take them home. Yeah. We do seedling giveaways to try to raise the consciousness. It's all drops in the bucket. It's got to be part of a curriculum, and it's got to have knowledgeable people like yourself." to promote it. And it's got to start early and it's got to continue through their lives. We're planting a, a tree for a school. And I said, we'll plant it out in front now this year. It's one of the um, last of the big white oaks. It's a seedling from the last of the big white oaks in New Jersey called the Salem Oak. And I'm babysitting it. And I'll know it I, very well. <laughs> yeah. And I'll give it. I actually climbed it. How about <laughs> that? And I gave it to the, um, I gave it to the school. And I said, yeah, we're going to plant it here. I'll show you how to plant. And but who's this for? This is for the advanced kids, you know, who are the science types. So it's a small subset. But at least every class that comes through will be responsible for taking care of this tree, measuring, photographing, growing up with it. So when they're 30, 40 years old, they'll see what, what the fruits of their labors are. I think this is really critical. That's how you, why you need to get it started really early. Once people uh, realize uh, we and our earth and all this are one, we're all connected. It's the four laws of, of ecology. Everything is connected to everything else. You, if you start people and educate them, they'll care. If you don't, they won't. Is there a way that the tree companies could actually go into schools and, and do these? I, I know we did in our community uh, we had a nonprofit organization and went into the elementary school and planted trees. And the kids that were the most vocal about what they've learned were the kindergartners. Planting those trees meant everything to them. And watching them grow was critical. Mm -hmm. You know, and when they left the school, they came back to look at it. Exactly. To see, because that's their tree. Yeah. That is the, the sense of ownership. The Precisely sense of ownership my point. Is, yeah. So the, same, the idea of ownership of commune even the, within the community if you plant a hundred trees with volunteer day or whatever scouts and you come back and you look at it and you say you know we planted those trees three years ago look how big they are mm -hmm. you keep coming back to that same place yeah and and i know bartlett's doing uh tree seedlings at the flower show they did last year and probably do it again this year but the idea of having a little class right there at the flower show where the company can show kids, this is going to just be for kids, have it open for kids and say, you know what, we're going to show you how to plant a tree. We're going to show you how to plant your little seedling in a pot and you're but, all going to take it home. 
And again, this has got to be on a national or an international level. I, I mean, I spent a career uh, going in and out of schools and every other, anybody else that would listen telling these kinds of stories. But what you're saying, I, I couldn't agree more. You just have to get it into a very early level. And some schools are gradually catching on. So I, I think that if you had to be optimistic would be to say that because things are going the way they're going, kids will be more exposed. They'll have to be because ultimately they will have to figure out the problems we have left. Them. And in order to do so, you have to be armed with more knowledge than you would get from uh, a video game. So we both have a background in corporate arboriculture, tree care industry professionals. You've mentioned a couple times, and I agree that tree care is a business and there's equipment to pay for, there's quality, talented guys and gals on the crew that you need to pay them a great wage. But if it's a business, then there is a business plan out there that a tree care company could opt on for that would introduce another profit stream to their business. And one of the biggest workarounds, and there is the flexibility there, is to talk to your insurance agent and step away from being that tree planting crew, away from being insured as climbing arborists and reduce your overhead significantly so that your workman's comp rate is equal to the people out there that are mowing, using the blowers and moving down the street. So that's a workaround. Just a fun way to wrap up though, Neil, since you've also talked at length about mulching and wood chips, I really like to make a distinction between wood chips and that fragrant stuff that the landscaper pulls up and spreads around the property. Because my understanding is that is more of an industrial wood waste. And what I'm seeing in the landscape is the annual applications, and I'm sure you've observed this something similar, the annual applications of shredded bark turn into a silty paste, kind of like one of those flourless chocolate cakes. And it's a crazy situation and just kind of another indignity of, that we're asking trees to, to grow in that fashion. Yeah, well, um, uh, doing anything on a calendar basis in, um, in tree care is usually a bad idea. Nature's variable and we should work yeah. with it. But it, it is pretty well established that wood chips are the, the superior form of mulch. Um, no, uh, it's a... Uh, Colored mulch is just an insult to everybody's uh, finer sensibilities. And uh, rubber mulch, which never breaks down, is not only, uh, I'm, I'm sure it has its place, but I have yet to figure out where it is, except on a playground. So, uh, you know, this is where nature knows best. Uh, put down uh, what trees grow in, which is organic. And people worry about high carbon nitrogen ratios, but it's not, you're not incorporating wood chips. You're putting them on the surface. It's the contact between the wood chip and the soil where the microbes do all their work and put it into the soil. So all those issues, people have all these ideas. I was just out in Colorado and they won't put down mulch anyway, even though it tends not to burn because they're afraid of it catching fire. And they're so afraid of fire. California, mm. Colorado, the whole far West, which is dry as toast. So yeah. They won't use much, and the trees are taking a pounding. They're losing trees by the millions because of the drought. And in the east, there are certain other species that we can't use anymore because they're just no yeah. longer suited here. So anyway, but ultimately, I think I would come back to, I couldn't agree with you both more, but the arboricultural industry responds to the demand of the clients. And unless we uh, start educating early on and in every classroom, from kindergarten, that trees need to be cared for, nurtured, that they have value to us, that we depend on them for air and so many other things. If you get that into the culture, then it'll come into the industry. It's not going to work the other way. Very good. Hey, Neil, do you have a spirit tree that you're extremely fond of? So the one at the moment near the end of my driveway, I have a fringe tree, a Chianthus. And mm. that's got to be right up there, but also it's flowering. So, uh, but yeah. uh, it's also hard not to like what the symbolism is, a white oak, uh, because that is sort of like the country's tree. It was built on it. 
and and all of that. So, and this is going to sound absolutely terrible, but it's a good place to finish. Is after working with the 9/11 trees from the time they were in the nursery till on the site, and the survivor tree, that calorie pair has a lot of meaning to it. Mm. How's it doing? Magnificently. Yeah, it's growing faster than than people would like to see. So they round it over, but still the tree is. When when I did a, a talk about it not that long ago, I just said, um, "Don't think of just the tree. Think of the symbolism." So trees are very symbolic, and we use a spirit tree. Well, it's what they symbolize, and as a consequence, those trees at the 9/11 memorial, because I had a chance to be near them and work with them uh, all those years, um, those are those are probably my my favorite trees. I have one growing from an acorn in my yard, which is now 25 feet tall. Very cool. Leave you with that. Thank you well, so much. Thank you Neil. so much for being on our podcast, Neil. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And nice to meet you, Eva. Oh, yes. Nice meeting you too. Bye-bye. See ya. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.